In this episode, we're going to fill you in on the nine most common first home buyer questions that we hear. We've also collected some from mortgage brokers, real estate agents and conveyances. You may have similar questions, but you don't know who to ask. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're talking about the most common questions that first home buyers ask. Now, before we get to that, however, Megan, last <laughs> episode, you started sharing crazy houses on your background. Um, and for those of you who are watching this rather than listening, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're just listening, bear with us for a quick couple of seconds. <laughs> Tell us about this one, Megan. I love this. This is called flipping houses. <laughs> <laughs> For those who understand the strategy, the the strategy in itself is to buy a house that needs a renovation, mainly a a cosmetic renovation, and turn it over really quickly. So do the work, turn it over, make some money, move on to the next one. But I just love this house. It has actually been physically flipped on its head and built upside down. So fantastic. All right, let's get cracking, Veronica. Don't buy that house, anybody. Don't buy that house, but it's gorgeous. Can you imagine? I just can't even fathom being in that house. It just Mm. turns my brain upside down. Let's get cracking and see if we can answer some of your questions today. All right. So the most. The big one. The big one. (laughs) Number one. We should, most people, when they do nine most common, they start at number nine and then they go. No, we're going to hit the big one. Start with number one. (laughs) The number one question that we get asked is where should I buy? And it's not only that we get asked it, Veronica, it's probably every first home buyer when they talk to people at a barbecue or their boss or their parents or their friends that have purchased, it is the most asked questions. Yeah, you know, where where should I buy? What do you, what do you think about this area? <laughs> you know, have you been here? What you know, so 
it, it's such a common question. And, and, and I think one of the scariest things that we observe with first home buyers is how easily influenced they can be by people who have no idea actually what they're trying to achieve. So, you know, you, you can ask that question. It's like me saying, where should I buy? And no one understanding where my children go to school, where my work is, um, where my social circles are, what, what sort of hobbies I have. Um, without that kind of information, then really you're asking someone where they think they should buy rather than where oh, you should buy. That's tricky. I think one of the big problems with where should I buy is like, it's a, that there's a sub-question to it that most people aren't articulating, and that is where am I going to make the most amount of money? You know, where's going to grow the most in value? You know, where's the next hotspot? These are sort of the underlying unasked questions that really are encompassed in where should I buy? And unfortunately, there's a lot of articles out there, clickbait, you know, top 10 suburbs mm-hmm. and all that sort yep. of stuff. And all of these do reflect on what has happened, not necessarily what will happen. And it, it's very, very enticing. But the pro- problem is the answer is a process. And like you say, you've got to take into account your individual requirements and goals and dreams and all that sort of stuff and, and finances. And then you have to actually go through a process of understanding what the possibilities are, which is why mm. we came up with the where to buy workshop after all, because it is a it, there's no simple answer to this question. And it's not it's not a one size fits all kind of solution. It actually the process is very different for for different people to go through because they have different priorities. And we talked about the, that this in episode eleven, if you if you remember back to to that. So. So the Where to Buy tutorial and episode 11 are probably some really good places to start to fill yourself with some of the things that you need to ask of yourself before you start asking other people, where should I buy? And then reframe your question. So reframing your question is a really important one because you start asking people about what your needs are and what you're trying to achieve rather than just seeking their opinion on what they think and, and what they're trying to achieve or have, you know. You know, many people buy in an area and they don't know that they've bought in the wrong area until they go to sell. So realising the impact of a mistaken purchase doesn't actually happen sometimes for a very long period of time. So you've got to be careful who you ask. Oh, yeah. And the next question, very commonly asked, is what (laughs) should I buy, a house or an apartment? Now, we will have an episode dedicated to this coming up in a few weeks, so keep an Uh, ear out for that one. But just a couple of tips on this one, you know, because it's it's very much... location-specific as well. I mean, if someone's looking at buying an apartment or a house in Brisbane, what would you say to them, Megan? Well, it's 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 very it's it's too too much of a closed question, Veronica, and 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 I guess this is what we really want people to open their minds up to. I, I can't say whether you should buy an apartment in Brisbane, but what I would say is there is a large supply of two-bed, two-bath, one-car accommodation apartments in Brisbane. So that means that you can probably pick one up pretty cheap. But if you looked at the the you know what that might mean for you, are you just buying yourself somewhere to live for a period of time and you don't care about no capital growth or some neg- potentially some negative capital growth, or are you looking at a three-bedroom apartment or a townhouse? Are you wanting to be in a particular area and you can't afford a house so the trade-off is an apartment? So there's so, 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 so many answers to that single question of what should I buy that are so personal, but you need to know the bigger picture in the areas that you're looking at buying in. And if this is a stepping stone strategy, you know, we talk about stepping stone strategy as a way to get from 
where you are now to your dream home in the long term if, if you're looking at a stepping stone strategy and you want this first property to do the heavy lifting for you to make some capital gains in a very short period of time, um, then certainly an apartment in Brisbane is not the way to do that. <laughs> However, if you want a lifestyle in a certain location and, you know, that's where you're going to be for 20 years, it might be a different discussion. Now, we will put the link for the Stepping Stone Strategy tutorial mm. in the show notes as well because that's newly released uh, if you're interested in looking at that. But, you know, I think the thing is with houses and apartments, and as I said earlier, we will do an episode dedicated to this coming up, but there's a there's a lot of misconceptions around apartments. Um, one is that they don't go up in value. And so if you buy in an area where they're all the same and there's too many of them, you're damn right, they're not going to go up in value. Yeah. But if you buy in an area where they're more scarce and a type of apartment that's scarce and particularly if you're looking at a three-bedroom in a certain area um, versus... certain type, like an art deco exactly. or something that isn't easily reproduced. I guess that's a big a big part of what we'll be talking about in the upcoming episode is, so. is, is the uniqueness, the scarcity, the inability to reproduce something en masse, which is really where those, those problematic oversupply issues have come from. Yeah, so I think a lot of people, a lot of first-time in particular, first home, first homers. Did I just say that first home? <laughs> first homers. First homers. <laughs> coined a new. Have phrase. you coined a new phrase? Oh, have you coined a new phrase? Come with us, first homers. We'll get you there. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of first-home buyers are lured to brand-new apartments because, of mm. course, let's face it, they're shiny and they're, they're new. They're gorgeous. They feel fabulous. And, you know, and, yeah. no one's ever cooked in that kitchen. Nothing to do. Um, the toilet's clean. That's it. They don't ever, they don't realise that it can be a trap. So we just, you know, there's no simple answer. And this is the scary thing. I hate to tell you this. We're here we are mm. doing nine most common first-home buyer questions. The first two have said there's no simple answer. <laughs> And therein lies the complexity. You know, we've got a, a trainee assistant buyer's agent who's been with us since uh, about March mm-hmm. and he constantly looks at us in our buyer's agency business in Brisbane, looks at us and said, I had no idea how complex this stuff was. Mm-hmm. My friends have purchased properties. They had no idea no yeah. idea in hindsight what they're actually doing. And I think that's the thing that we're just so dead keen on doing is making sure that people have their eyes wide open, that they're alerted to the things that they don't know. You don't know what you don't know until somebody tells you, but it's in. it oh. has to be independent without any kind of ulterior motive. Sorry, it just got on my bandwagon a little bit there. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to buy your first home relying on dumb luck. All right, third question. How much can I afford? This is such a big question. And, you know, people go to all sorts of different places to find the answer to this information. And and the first place that a lot of people go to is online calculators. So they might go to, you know, a bank's online calculator that gives you an indication of what your borrowing capacity might be. And, and really that's borrowing capacity gives you an indication of how much you can afford. Um, Veronica, we're not, we're not big fans of the online calculators because there's a lot of things missing there, isn't there? Well, yeah, they're, they're very much just a, a guide at best. And, you know, when if you tune into previous episodes, we're episode seven. Episode seven uh, in the preparation phase. Yep. All about borrowing strategy with David Johnson and episode 28, all about the pre-approval process with Stuart Weems. Um, both experts, both mortgage brokers who explain things very, very well, you know, they, they, they start to sort of shed a bit of light on the complexity. Once again, no simple yep. answers. The yep. complexity and the v- different levers that you can play with, you know, the 
whether you use LMI or pay LMI or not, let's lenders mortgage lenders mortgage insurance. insurance yeah. Um, you know, whether you uh, borrow money from your family or not, you know, whether you actually try to use every grant that's being um, given out by the governments and which ones are good Super ones to look at, which schemes ones are. and all sorts of things that, that are available. There's, and there's so the, much there to look at that will influence how much you can afford. That's it. And but and also how is it are you limiting your what you can afford by what you think you should be able to afford versus what you actually can afford? And mm. then are you looking at the property type and uh, in terms of what you are looking at buying and and truly understanding what you need to be able to afford and then assessing it that way. So there's all these different ways to look at how to answer this question and here we go. <laughs> and we want to give you that information. So go back to those previous episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Fill yourself with knowledge from people who are independent and actually have the right advice. Now, it's not personal advice. By no means are we suggesting that. We absolutely advocate for using a mortgage broker mm-hmm. who will assess your personal situation. So the online calculator might give you a bit of a pie in the sky. Oh, maybe we could afford $700,000. Um, but actually going to a mortgage broker and having them assess your individual situation, um, you know, all those sorts of things, that is the place to go in your preparation phase to, to get the right information, but also to understand and get expert input into how you can improve your situation situation if you want to. So this Veronica, is actually one of the, the simplest one of all three questions so far, right? Yeah, it is actually. There's, tell there you exactly is an where answer. To go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly where to go to get the answer. But just when you go to a mortgage broker, don't just go to any old mortgage broker. Go to one and, and test them out with that question. How can you explain borrowing strategy to me? And if they can't answer that or they waffle and you think, oh, I know. actually, Well, they go straight to an interest rate. Yeah. I know who's got the best interest rate. Interest rate is one of the smallest part of the big picture when it comes to borrowing strategy, isn't it? It is. Yeah, right. But yet so many of the, so many buyers actually focus on that question and that question line. So, yeah, good. All right, go back to those episodes, review. Absolutely. Fourth question. I found a place I like. What do I do now? <laughs> well, hopefully well, finance approved. <laughs> and and this comes down to process, doesn't it? I guess mm. I guess what we've done in pulling these questions together is you'll probably notice it does follow a little bit of the process, a little bit. And and if you've um if you understand our course and you've looked at our course structure, our course is very much structured step by step, right from the very start, preparation, before you even open realestate.com or domain.com or or, or start treading you know, out in the street looking at um properties or speaking to agents. It there is so much to do in the right order and and this is a big part of it. If you've done all your preparation work really well, then when you get to the point of actually finding a place that you like, you're probably well-placed to know what to do next. And that's that's around the due diligence, how to research a property. Um, and we've got we've actually got an episode coming up shortly, two episodes coming up shortly. One is around due diligence and the other one is around the so- sorts of free data and information that you can use. And, and it's all very well and good to have this information, but we actually want you to know how to use it yeah. and how to apply it to individual properties so that you you have a methodology when you find a property that you like that you can pull it to pieces and put it back together again um, and in relation to what your needs are and your goals. 
So Megan's talking about the PACE system. So that's the the system that underpins our Your First Home Buyer Guide, the course, right? So PACE is P for preparation, A for action, C for commitment, and E for execution. And so these things have to happen in a certain order, as Megan was just saying. And, you know, when we get up to I found a place I like, what do I do now? That's the commitment phase. That's where we've got to basically go, right, well, what do I need to know in order to make sure that I'm not committing myself to buying a lemon or committing myself to a a nightmare of horrors because there's all these things that I was unaware of. And so it's about peeling the scales off your eyes and taking the rose-coloured glasses off and and thinking, are there reasons why I should not buy this property? What do I need to know? How do I need to arm myself? So um, very, very important so that, but the whole point there about saying about pace is that preparation and action comes before the commitment. So uh, unfortunately, what a lot of people do, they get to action, all right, but they've done none of the preparation. So when they get to commitment, that's that's when there's this mad panic. What the hell do I do now? So <laughs> <laughs> who do I talk to? And I don't even know what answers I'm I'm looking for. It's like that's, do it in the right order. That, get it in the right order. Get it in the right order. Let's get to the next one because this is a big part of of what do I do now, and that is what should I pay? <laughs> now, you're very fortunate because we have a free mini course for you. You will have the link in the show notes and it's literally a free little three video course teaching you how to price a property and with a spreadsheet and the whole palaver. And we've also got an episode 27. Go back and listen to that. So there is, once again, it's a process. You don't sort of lick your finger and stick it in the air and hope <laughs> throw it throw a dart at a dartboard eh, I don't know or worse take your budget and decide that that's what you're going to pay for the property because that's how much you can afford or just add 10% onto whatever the agent saying is the price guide so all of these are really bad bad methods for working out what you should pay the other thing that you should not do and that is don't ask your mortgage broker what you should pay they haven't seen the property they don't know what what the comparables are sorry they might know what the comparables are but they haven't seen the property and they're not experts in pricing properties they are experts in sourcing funding for you to be able to purchase the property so we we talk about experts staying in their lanes big one is mortgage brokers should not be telling you what you should pay for a property a valuer is the expert who will value the property on behalf of the bank or a buyer's agent will give you guidance around pricing if you um, engage them to help you with that part of the process. And just remember, we've talked about buyer's agents before and what their role can be. It can be everything from the whole process for you or just little bits of the process and and helping you price a property is, is absolutely one of those things that a buyer's agent can help you with. Now, with a mortgage broker, a lot of the ones that we talk to, they do say that a lot to buyers, not just first-time buyers, by the way, a lot of buyers of all descriptions, ask them what they should pay for a property. And a lot of the reasons why that is, I think, is because people don't know where to turn to get this information. And unless you are going to pay an expert, then you do need to learn how to do it yourself because the broker can't. And the worst thing a broker will do is when they're trying to be helpful is press a button and give you an AVM, an automated valuation model is what it's called and that's where the computer spits out a price range the worst thing do not rely on that and if you do get given one get a big black texter cross out price price out just turn over (laughs) to the comparable sales and make your own mind up as to whether they are in fact comparable or not 
And and that's a big part of the free course, isn't it, Veronica? We talk about and we pull AVMs to pieces. Um, you know, just an example, we did a we did an AVM on a particular property in the in the free course in the mini course, and there was a two hundred ninety nine thousand dollar range between the lowest price in the range and the highest price in the range. Now, you know, you and I have been doing this for decades and that is not helpful information. No. I think anyone's probably heard me go on about that ANZ ad, you know, when the sanctimonious <laughs> buyer holds the iPad in front of the real estate agent and says, I'm all right, thanks, because I've got the ANZ AVM. And yeah. um, and then you look at it, you zoom in, and it's got something like 680000 or 920 or something on the range. <laughs> That helps nobody. How is that helpful? You're either going to underpay or overpay. It gives you no, you know, you want to, you need a much narrower range when you're when you're um, putting a price on a property. Okay, so let's move on to question six in our top nine questions. What deposit do I have to pay? And this uh, this depends on where you're buying, and it depends what you mean by deposit. Ah, so, okay, there's two types of deposit. There's the holding deposit, which if you're in New South Wales, holds nothing and is useless. Just a, <laughs> It's almost like a letter of intent. Um, and then there's the actual deposit that you hand over in order to secure the property. And that's part of a, a process that you need to go through. So, And, and it's different state by state, as you it po- pointed is, out. Typically in New South Wales, it's 10%, but it's not unusual to be negotiated down to five. And in other states, there's no such amount, no set amount. And in some states, you don't need any consideration to form a contract. And in other states, there's, there's a certain amount. You know, I think I think South, oh, I might be, oh, South Australia is oh, hundred dollars. Or anyway, <laughs> this we, we do have in the we do have um, uh, more information on that in course. But this is really important to understand because this is the money. This is not the deposit that, um, that you're contributing in addition to the the funds that the bank is going to to loan you. This is the deposit that is part of the negotiation and the form of um, the contract or securing the property under your control contractually. So it's it's really important to understand that in a really strong seller's market, you need to have a pretty decent deposit to show that you're you're pretty serious. So in a buyer's market where there's not a lot of competition and, and sellers are you know really keen for people to put any kind of offers forward, we, we can secure a contract for $1,000. Um, but there's no chance in the world that we would be able to do that in Brisbane in a seller's market where other people might be offering 3 5% maybe to secure the property. Um, auctions are different. So that, that's, that's an amount that you put forward as, an, as a, an offer of consideration to form the contract. In an auction situation, it is the seller who will determine or the, the agent um, under the seller's instruction who will determine what the deposit is. And you need to make sure that you have those funds available should you be the the buyer on the day at the fall of the hammer it is usually a requirement that you either pay on the day or within a certain amount of time and and the age you need to ask the agent what that amount is most often it's 10 percent sometimes it'll be dropped to five percent but if you're working out how much you're going to pay for a property you need to factor in that you will need to transfer that money uh, if you do it electronically or a bank um bank check uh, deposit guarantees are a, a little less um, common these days, but you need to have access to that money if you purchase that property on auction day. And it's such an interesting point because a lot of people think I've saved up a 20% deposit and I have to pay a 20% deposit to the owner or to the agent when you actually execute that contract and you don't. It's actually no. different. It's they're, two, they're the same word, two very, very different um, meanings. So what mm. you have to save up in order to have the bank give you the balance 
is one form of deposit. The other form of deposit is literally what you hand over in order to secure the property. And then on settlement, that's when you have to make up the difference. You know, yeah. so the bank will still only give you however much that they've decided they're going to give you. And then if you have more money you need to tip in, so that's where your balance of your 20%, if that's what you've saved up, that's when you actually hand that over to the vendor on settlement, not actually at the beginning of the process. Good. Excellent advice, Veronica. Question seven. Do I really have to use a solicitor or a conveyancer? <laughs> this has got a really easy answer. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> now, but it's not just is it yes, easy? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And don't early. go cheap on this one. Don't no. don't go for the cheapest quote that you possibly can. Um, and and we had a we had a great discussion with Jenny Tyner, who's a, a conveyancer in New South Wales. That was episode twenty three. So have a look back at that one um, on some of the things that can really go wrong if you don't have the solicitor involved at the right point in the contract. Um, in Queensland, it's a really different point that you involve the solicitor. In New South Wales. The contract is created by the solicitors, uh, the seller's solicitor, isn't it, Veronica? So, yes. in actual fact, that that involvement is very early, and and the agent has to provide that contract to the purchaser um, for their solicitor to take it up here for their solicitor to review prior to any sort of exchange. Yep, and I, I love how you sort of almost you say it like a question, Megan, because it's every state is so different, different, you know, and when I talk about Queensland, I'm, I'm scratching my head because it's not like that. It's nothing like that. Yeah. Um, but the, the fact is that you need a conveyancer or solicitor to be involved early as possible as soon as you have decided you really want to go for a property because it doesn't matter whether there's a state like New South Wales or like Victoria even where, where the vendor has to disclose certain things or in Queensland where the vendor doesn't disclose much at all. The solicitor or conveyancer needs to know where the gaps are, what else you need to know before you commit yourself to it and if there are any conditions that you can put forward, what you need to be asking for. Because if you go in and you can make an offer without, you can, you can sign a contract without actually consulting with a solicitor first, even in New South Wales, not not unconditionally. I mean, you will get a cooling off period, but you risk um, a portion of that money, of the, the amount that you've uh, offered, you risk 0.25% of that if you back out. And you might need to back out if you haven't had that contract reviewed first. Mm. There might be things there that are really unfavourable to you that you can't then renegotiate. So it absolutely, the answer is yes, you do need to yes. use conveyance or That's solicitor. straightforward. That is the the, the most straightforward question that but we need, can answer. You need a one that's experienced, not cut price, and you need to get them involved early once you've found a property. Absolutely agree. Let's move on to question eight. Do I really need to have a building and pest inspection? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, sometimes the seller may have done one in the lead up to an auction or in the, the pre-sale process. Um, so it it may be available through the agent or you may have to engage um, someone yourself to get one done. Uh, they're, they're two different approaches to make um, because if a seller has, in, has, has um, got an inspector doing an inspection on their behalf, um, it's not necessarily a pre-purchase inspection, it's a pre-sale inspection. So it may not be as in-depth as you might want as a purchaser. 
Now, I'm just sort of, we did interview one of my old favourite building and pest inspectors, and I'm just quickly looking up the episode. It's on the run sheet, Veronica. It's episode nine. It's not. It's the wrong one. Oh, is it the wrong one? That's the wrong one. And I'm Apologies. like, that's the wrong one. Oh, here we go. Questions you must ask your building inspector with Peter Mazia is episode 14. 14. So that's a fantastic uh, episode to go back to. Peter, it was, you know, the I learned a lot from Peter. He used to be the building inspector we used to use. So the thing about building inspector inspections and, the, and whether or not you use the one that the agent has done is that you've got to sort of understand that, that okay, there's obviously a time saving and probably a cost saving in using the agent's one, but there's also probably a slight conflict of interest. Now, we sometimes use them and that is because we have dealt with so many um, agents and and properties around the, the years that and a, and what do you call them building inspectors, inspectors that we know who's good building inspector who's a bad building inspector. So there's one guy, for instance, that the minute I see his name on there, I just say to the guy to our team, I'm sorry, we've got to get our own independent one. Yeah. I saw this guy at an open house once, the first time I ever came across him, pulling at a fibro sheet on a very old house and tugging at the thing. And I went, mate, what if that's asbestos? And he's like, oh, that's it's not that important. And I went, okay, can you just, okay. before you do any more, I want to leave. Just rewind. I want to <laughs> actually get away from you because if one of those little fibres lodges itself in my lungs, I could get, get asbestosis or anyway, beside all that, it, it was just so ignorant. Now, then I read a couple of his reports and they were on properties that I've been through myself, I could have written a more comprehensive report on my inspection and they were alarmingly positive. So I know that guy's Reports are worth nothing. So the minute I see his name, we will get our own independent one. And other times when another guy who we do rate quite well and, and I'll pick up the phone and i have a quick chat to him. Now, that's a benefit I've got as a buyer's agent. Because mm, so, you're dealing with so many so often. You're seeing who's good, you're seeing who's bad, but you've also got formed a, a respectful relationship Exactly. So, but the thing is also that I I do know by looking at a property, because I look at so many different types of ages, and this is where you need to go back and listen to episode 14, different types of properties at different ages will have different typical, typical faults. And so when I go through and look at those things, I, I know what to expect to see in the building inspection report. And if I don't see reference to them, I'm alarmed mm. and I want to get my own report. So it's just something to be aware, very aware of that there are so many things that can go wrong in a building and when you're buying a house, everything costs a lot of money to fix. So yeah. it's worthwhile spending a few hundred bucks to get into building and pest inspection. I think the other thing that, that we do touch on in that episode is that if you do um, rely on the, the inspection report that has been supplied by the vendor, then you need to make sure that that can actually, you, you can actually sort of purchase mm that warranty if you like so so the report is only done for the person who engages the inspector um, in order for you to have that warranty from the inspection you need to make sure that that can that inspection can be transferred to you if you're the successful purchaser um, so certainly go back to that episode and review that because that's really important if you decide not to engage your own building and pest inspector such a good point in fact that has actually been something that i've noticed change there's one mob called before you, there's before you bid and eye on it 
there's a few of these these organisations that actually they're effect, effectively an aggregator for building pest inspectors, right? So they, the agent, I don't know if it doesn't look like it's the case up in Brizzy, but in, in Sydney, agent will book it through one of these companies. They'll farm it out to hold any number of uh, um, inspectors. And you might buy a report for, it could be 29 bucks, 49 bucks, $69. And then there'll be a clause Cheap. there to say, if you're the successful purchaser, you need to top that up with another 300 bucks or whatever it is, is the top up fee in order to get that report in your name if you are the successful purchaser. So there's lots of different terms depending on who actually does the report and that's well worth reading up on that too because you might buy one of these cheap ones and not realise that if you become the purchaser, it's automatic, you'll get billed. And and in a way it's a good thing because that means that it's in your name and you can rely on that if there's something missing in mm-hmm. the future. Mm-hmm. But seriously, do you really want to rely on it? You really want to buy a building where you understand, you know, what you're what And you're you can talk into. to the inspector. Mm. It's so important to talk to them. You know, one of the big questions that we always ask if there's a few issues in a property and it's where it's sort of on the fence, we'll say to the inspector, would you let your daughter buy this property? Yes. Um, and it's such a powerful question because, well, let's be honest, most inspectors are male. Um, and and the, the answer to that question can sometimes be really quite telling. Absolutely. It's a great question to ask. All right. On to your favourite. On to your favourite, Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> I hate auctions and I don't want to buy a property that way. It's not really a question. I hear this so many times from even our own clients. So our buyer's agency clients will say to me, Megan, I don't care how good the property is. I'm not buying an auction. And I'll say, well, I don't care what you think. It's just another <laughs> way to buy. And if it's the right property, I'll be buying it at auction, not you. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fear. It's it is fearful. It's scary. I mean, auctions are really sort of you know they're they're very daunting. And mm. the amount of times that I come across people the first time they've ever been to an auction, they're actually bidding at it for themselves. It's like, oh my god, what? I've never what seen are it before. I, I was sitting in an in rooms auction um, a few weeks ago, and uh, and there was a, a a lovely little first home. Uh, that was there. There was an investor and two first home buyers that were bidding against each other. So it wasn't it wasn't an overly active auction, uh, but this this poor couple that was sitting down the front, they were so nervous, and you could hear the shaking in his voice, and she was clutching his arm, and and um, and and anyway, the investor sort of fell off, and there was two first home buyers left, and this poor bloke bid against himself in the auction room, and the auctioneer, you know very experienced auctioneer um, looked at him and said, look, mate, you don't actually have to bid against yourself if you're holding the bid. And he <laughs> didn't know what that meant. And yeah. and I just felt, I just felt so deeply in my heart that had had he gone, had that couple gone to a few auctions and got a bit comfortable with it, understood the process, read the book. I mean, you've written the book on auctions. Oh, um, had they done these things and they would have been in a so much more powerful position um, to feel confident, but also to be in control of the process. Mm. So, Whilst, what <laughs> did you actually get that to I show? I was up? just sorry. I was You've just. You've got to get the angle, haven't you? I know we've got this <laughs> pretty, sort of. Pretty. Sorry, once again, this is a, jo- a visual joke for those of you watching the video. But I've been quietly, sneakily putting the, <laughs> the book cover up in front of me on the video. But of course, I've got this weird green screen behind me, so it keeps sort of disappearing. <laughs> it's very odd. Anyway, sorry for those. That's a visual one for listening. those who are just listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think it's really it's it's. 
there are so many more properties and, and an increasing number of properties going to, to auction and particularly in a seller's market mm. where there are multiple buyers competing for very limited stock. There's It's more common for properties to go to auction and to make it all the way through to auction, not actually sell before auction. So it's so important that you don't discount or eliminate properties just because they are being sold by a particular method. So method of sale is is what we talk about um, in, in the in the um, the ten step um, pay system method. <laughs> your me- first method- home buyer guide, folks. <laughs> your first home buyer guide. The method of sale is most commonly either private treaty, where a property is advertised with a price or for sale or by negotiation or words similar to that, or by public auction, um, which is essentially gathering bidders together and putting them in competition with each other. Now, I, as a professional, would much rather stand up at an auction on behalf of my clients and see what what every other bidder is, do, bidder is doing and have the ability to just sneak over the top of an underbidder to purchase the property than to have a closed door, almost auction, put your best offer forward, have no idea what anyone else is paying and be quite blind in the process. So for me as a professional, I find auction to be a, a very good way to see what other buyers are doing and, and not to feel like I'm backed into a corner with no control. It's transparent. That is one of the the benefits to buyers and that's one of the things that often buyers don't realise how opaque and nasty (laughs) offers behind closed doors can be. Multiple offers are hard going, you know, you just don't know. So when when buyers say, look, I hate auctions and I want to make a pre-auction offer, how can I do that? Which is sort of like the the sub-question to this question. Mm. Um, What I'd like to counsel, counsel you to do is be very aware of what also can go wrong and then you won't even know what's whether to believe the agent or not when they're they're telling you about other offers so to go back and listen to episode 24 we go into auctions uh a whole episode about auctions so you don't have to um get too scared and demystify and all that sort of stuff and you can also buy the book if you want to um and that's that's our top nine nine. questions that's our top nine questions that first time buyers most commonly ask um glad you could join us for the episode in this episode we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first time buyers if you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake then head over to our website www.homebuyeracademy.com.au Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff. 